Hello, everyone, and welcome to GBA's April Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Daniel Neff. Today, we are joined by Michael Lightman and Doug Bell from EY. Thanks for being with us, guys. Today, we are going to do a deep dive on the Biden administration's proposed Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, otherwise known as the IPEF. USTR initiated a public comment period requesting input on the fair and resilient trade pillar that closed on April 11th. And as a reminder, GBA submitted comments, which you can find on the GBA app. For the comments, USTR sought stakeholder feedback on a number of topics such as supply chains, the environment, the uh, digital economy, and more. Before we go into some of the specifics and some of the comments that GBA put forward, I'm curious how you guys think the agreement has evolved since we last spoke. I know details are sparse, but one piece has specifically caught my attention, this idea that countries can choose which pillars they would like to sign on to. Do you guys think that either A, that'll create holes in the framework, or B, lead to a broad coalition of countries seeing flexibility in what they can agree to and pick and choose? Well, thanks, Daniel. This is Doug, and I'm happy to join you again. It's always a great opportunity to speak to you and your membership on uh, interesting topics. So to speak to the question you posed, um, you know, I think certainly the framework does seem to be progressing. Uh, It's been uh, at the the Federal Register notice and opportunity for you know organizations like yours to comment. I understand there's, there's a fair number of comments that came in, um, so that's always a, a positive sign. And you know it looks like they're also looking to when they can sort of announce this and, and sort of move forward and you know looking for dates uh, in the spring um, that you know work with various calendars and such. So I think those are all positive developments. But you have raised a question. Um, which is, you know, the structurally, you know, this sort of optionality that comes with the framework and, you know, is that going to be a, a, a net benefit or will that sort of um, detract from it? I think the answer to that obviously depends on which countries choose which pillars. Um, I, I think, you know, from a, a framework and a utility point of view and from you know, a, a corporate, obviously want to see as many co- countries as possible, sign up for the most, you know, all the pillars. There's different groupings, and I think when you, you know, look at the, you know, the potential members of this, you know, there's sort of the, um, you know, the 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 core group who are, um, you know, open traders. U.S. has FTAs with those already. This is like the New Zealanders and Australians and Singaporeans, uh, you know, amongst others. And then, you know, of course, you have. Um, the countries that we don't, uh, the United States does not have FTAs with, and you know might be more, uh, you know, look to kind of pick and choose. So, you know, what is India going to do? Will they be willing to sign up for a comprehensive framework, or um, you know, something less, as an example? Um, so, I think it'll really sort of depend on you know that that second grouping of com- countries and what they're willing to sign on to, and you know, de- that'll sort of have an impact on the dynamics. So until I think we see that happen, I think we should hopefully, uh, and certainly country companies, you know, where they have locations or, you know, influence in these countries to certainly encourage as broad as uh, a participation as possible. I don't know, Michael, if you had anything you wanted to add to that as well. No, Doug, I think you hit all the the key points there. And I, and I, the one comment is that just the disperse and unique nature, when you start looking at each of the different countries that embed the actual region or even just within some of the subregions within those countries some of the priorities and needs are just going to add to the complexity as more comprehensive details start to come together in the negotiation but i think a lot of that echoes the points you've made great thanks guys and so 
looking at specifics now, specifically to, I think, what a lot of people commented on, one of the biggest gripes that I've heard stakeholders have with the agreement is the lack of market access. Uh, in our comments, GBA argued that increasing market access should be a key component of the agreement. We've also seen reports and opinions that the IPF is doomed to fail because other countries that want to join the framework do not see it as sufficiently ambitious. And so, Doug, I think kind of getting to what you were talking about, it probably depends on which countries join stuff, which will be interesting to see. But I'm wondering, do you guys share this view that countries won't be willing to sign on due to a lack of incentives like market access? Or how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I, I think it does get back to um, you know the, the 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 that distinction I made between sort of countries where we already have FDAs and sort of have sort of high standards when it comes to the type of things that are being offered, and so you know market access would clearly be an incentive, um, you know, if you don't have a free trade agreement and you're concerned about making sort of you know significant commitments, let's say on the trade uh, pillar. But it is worth noting that you know there are four pillars. I mentioned just trade, but you also have supply chain, uh, infrastructure, and, and tax and anti-corruption. And while we don't know all the details around those, I, I think it is important to note that you know it it's not necessarily the case that the U.S. Uh, is seeking something from these countries that they aren't already interested in already. Um, I think we all uh, you know are familiar enough with you know the broader supply chain challenges and how those um, you know, are affecting you know, the global economy. And you know, I, I think that that's an example where you, know, there, you, know, you may not necessarily need incentives you know, by, like market access to really encourage participation and membership. So I, again, I, you know, I, I'm, I really hesitate to sort of you know, <laughs> you know, write, write the song of doom about this at this stage of the, of the exercise. But I think you know it clearly market access is sort of a, a major concern for the um, the administration. Uh, you know the role um, you know that that labor plays and the concerns that have been voiced around that and sort of larger uh, you know concerns around free trade agreements. So this is a good example where the administration is going to have to figure out how to navigate um, you know those various tensions. And you know the reception that this that this framework receives, uh, who signs up, and under what conditions, those will be important signals. And you know I, I would just emphasize that, at least in my mind, that you know this is the start of a journey, and that you know it may be the case that these things will sort of evolve over time. Yeah, and another argument GBA made is very clear enforcement mechanism. Ambassador Ties uh, even cited USMCA as a good model. Is that something do you, that you think USTR and Commerce would eventually include in the IPF? Yeah, Daniel, it's Michael. I'm I'm going to take that one because I think the connection points that GBA has made on the requirements for you know having a comprehensive mechanism, enforcement mechanism, and a compliance model is going to be critical to what ultimately any shape of the agreement you know, takes form in. Uh, and we've seen, of course, that the USMCA, now that we're past uh, all of the, the process of the rewrite and moving it into its enforcement, has begun to take hold. Uh, and there's just key provisions that a comprehensive agreement itself is going to require to then build that framework around. And so we do also believe that that, that is what will be the uh, intent of the administration going forward. And ultimately, depending on how long it takes for the negotiations, the USMCA framework 
you know, has now uh, taken root and is in place. Companies have adapted to the requirements, uh, as have the government parties in USMCA. Of course, looking at the Indo-Pacific region, you have different stakeholders and different issues and interests compared to some of the issues that drove or were prevalent in the USMCA frame re rewrite of NAFTA. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, most of those still will come into play and are similar to enforcement issues and potentially labor. And we've seen, of course, recently on the USMCA side, the back and forth, but ultimately a path forward after the labor union issue in Mexico. Um, and now that we would think that that type of model will, will likely follow. I think, Doug, do you have some additional thoughts around that? You know, Michael, I would just add that I, I think in the, the short term, at least, you know, as, as initially advertised, it's sort of hard to see how they're going to have an enforcement mechanism. You know, you you really did a good job of outlining sort of the complexities and considerations. And I, I think fundamentally the, the, the challenge is, is that, you know, while you can have a, a strong enforcement mechanism, something has to be at risk to sort of enforce the enforcement mechanism, so to speak. We'll have to see how these other you know what kind of binding commitments are, are in the agreement, but I, I think the you know Daniel the the missing link there of market access that you highlighted earlier is is historically in the way most of these you know enforcement mechanisms are sort of premised on you know if if you violate the agreement you reduce you know some aspect of market access and obviously that's not a tool that'll be available so again coming back to the point i made earlier this is probably a bit more of a medium to longer term proposition if this is going to you know strong enforcement mechanisms are going to be involved it may need sort of further you know rejiggering of the framework itself i suspect i appreciate that guys it's a lot of great insight and a lot of a lot of great points um but switching gears a little bit usdr was interested in hearing about IP and digital economy standards as well. And in our comments, GBA argued that the free flow of data between countries, avoiding forced localization of data, and protecting IP rights are all very important. Do you guys think this will be a large piece of the fair and resilient trade pillar? And do you think most countries will be eager to sign on to this? Well, you know, I think, you know, within what you just sort of described, I, I think I would make a distinction between sort of, you know, traditional IP concerns like copyright, patent protection, you know, these type of elements versus sort of digital economy issues. I, I think the latter, a digital economy will be a, a big part of this agreement and that will, you know, that will, in, in, you know, have probably some, you know, data localization commitments and these type of things. And again, I, I think that's probably certainly, you know, based on what I've seen is, you know, one of the more attractive features, certainly for the business community. And the question is, you know, what does that mean for, you know, other countries? Because in Indo-Pacific, we have seen, you know, movement towards data localization and, you know, for reasons of either data sovereignty or, you know, protectionist reasons, uh, you know, to develop own, um, you know, domestic IT infrastructure. That's an issue, and so I think that will be one of probably the dividing lines in terms of you know which countries sign up and for which pillars. Um, you know, I suspect for some of them, you know, a digital economy, a meaningful digital economy agreement will will be tough to swallow. And you know, coming back to again that point you started off with, you know, if, if there there may be sort of that's one where there are trade offs with incentives, uh, unlike let's say maybe supply chain or some of these other areas uh, that could be, um, you know, detract from particip participation. I don't know, Michael, if you wanted to add to that as well. 
I just think that the every point you've made resonates with companies that we're speaking with that are monitoring this and, and some of the other current events and progressions of of all the trade agreements and especially especially thinking about intellectual property uh, and the digital economy requirements and GBA's comments. I think the the main theme or takeaway has definitely been around the continued evolving uh, technology and advancements in the space and the need for trade itself and supply chain to withstand all of the pressures that have been experienced in the last couple of years, whether pandemic or economic or otherwise, uh, that are that are coming into now complicating global trade movements and supply chain flow and understanding that the criticality of the digital economy and intellectual property needs to stay at the forefront with these agreements and how they'll be implemented so that they're actually additive to success both for trade generally and for both uh, and for every economy that participates in such an agreement and obviously as well for the specific enterprises or or companies themselves. So that's just the other thought I had is that it sounds like there's a, a large concern that the ability for negotiators to keep current with the 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 present and the very likely next state of of the future for this this area is critically important. Great, yeah, and I appreciate the distinction there, guys. It's really helpful. Um, and so, kind of with all this in mind, what do you think businesses can do in the interim as the administration continues to develop the framework? You know, where else can stakeholders engage here beyond the comments? Well, you know, I, I think there's sort of two primary areas. Um, I, I think you know, one is. You know, I think it particularly relevant for your membership, which you know spans not just you know the United States, but you know has a presence in all these other countries. And I think voicing views uh, in these other countries is just as important as you know participating in the process in the United States. Uh, and to the extent that you know organizations like GBA are able to speak with one voice, uh, that makes it even more influential. Um, because I do think it makes a difference. Um, you know, I have been monitoring, you know, this discussion and, you know, this this policy initiative, and it's, it seems very clear to me that, you know, the administration has sort of uh, changed its views o over time. You know, not necessarily everything that, you know, you wanted to see in your letter, for example, but um, I, I think there are differences. And again, you know, we're, I just come back to a point I made earlier, you know, we're playing for a long game here. It's, it's, it's not necessarily just, you know, the, the you know, what gets announced initially, you know, there'll be midterms in the United States. There'll be, you know, uh, just to use an example and, you know, the configuration that, you know, comes out, political configuration comes out of that will make a difference. So, you know, firms really need to kind of take that perspective and engage. The second piece where I think there's a real opportunity is, as we know, and basically, what we've sort of been discussing is the devil is in the details here, right? And so, you know, what does does it exactly mean when you know you're going to be talking about infrastructure, or you know, tax and anti-corruption? And at that detailed level, I think there's a lot that the private sector and companies in your organization can contribute to making this, you know, a useful agreement. So even if it doesn't necessarily have all the features that you want, I mean, it's interest of everyone to make it a success. Uh, and it's interest to have, be meaningful. So, you know, if there are government policies that can be, you know, introduced, you know, on the supply chain side, for example, that can help companies, then by all means, you know, that's the sort of understanding and knowledge. And some of this is new stuff for policymakers. 
and so you know assuming that they know exactly what they want to be doing and how they want to be doing it i would not make that assumption and so i think there's a real contribution that you know individual companies can make and organizations like yours to sort of really advancing you know the quality of this agreement and again it's play for the long term so michael yeah i think those are all really good points doug and i think the similarities to prior trade negotiations where companies had to follow previous examples and pass forward and ultimately what came out of the agreements is really important here and it, as an example again uh, USMCA itself went from you know the really the idea that it was a complete brand new agreement but really was just an enhancement that modernized NAFTA and some of the key provisions that we've already spoken to a little bit here today and and many have awareness of and I think really the takeaway here is lots of lessons learned in that approach uh, and needs to be thought of to be more progressive and forward in bringing the needs or the specific concerns through you know through communications to members of congress and to uh, the administration and to the negotiators so that they can try to get it right from day one and really make it an effective and and, and useful framework for now and ultimately what may end up being a final agreement so that uh, all of these concerns, uh, both, you know, again, lessons learned and as much in, envisionment as possible of of what lies ahead uh, with the current and next step uh, with global trade and supply chain impacts once all this current disruption dust settles down and we have a new a new normal in place. Having those built into something like this can only be beneficial to that final agreement. So those are my final thoughts. Great. Well, really appreciate it. A good positive note to end on, certainly opportunity to roll up the sleeves and kind of dig into some of the issues. Um, so really, of course, like always, really appreciate your guys' comments. Thank you for being here, Michael and Doug. We'll get to speak soon again at the May trade policy call. So looking forward to speaking with you guys again soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel.